Emily. Uh, we're, just, uh, we're just a couple days away from Valentine's Day. I'm not an expert in love, um, so I'm, so I'm going to preach on the opposite, which is rejection. Um, <laughs> fortunately, I do a, too, a little too much experience there. Um, funnily enough, I wrote this sermon actually last Friday, um, and then I went, I went to Edmonton, and uh, I, I go to usually church services every so often in the city, stuff we're not in charge of where you can just kind of receive or whatever. I kind of went in there. It was a bit of a zoo, and people were climbing for seats, and I was sitting in one for probably like 20 minutes before someone comes up to me and says, you know, that's my seat. And so anyways, I was just like, this is dumb, so I just, I got up and left. Uh, then there was no seat left, so I just went to another church instead. Um, where I was treated like a celebrity, funnily enough. As soon as I walked in the door, so many people knew me. Um, and I was like, weird, I just wrote a, literally just wrote a message called Rejection and Acceptance, and then I experienced it. Um, what's interesting with rejection is it can take many, many, many different forms. Lots of different um, severities of it, I guess, lots of different degrees of it. But no matter how much, even if it's just tiny, it always stings. Whether it's, you know, a romantic thing or a job thing or a friend thing or even from a stranger, rejection always stings. Scientists have actually uh, studied rejection quite a bit and they've actually yet to find a scenario where, where rejection isn't painful. There's not a scenario out there that rejection does not bother you. So lots of neuroscience stuff have, has been done. They can scan your brain and stuff like that and they, they can figure out that actually the pain of rejection is harder on your brain than most physical pain. And actually, if you were to sit and think of a time you went through a serious injury, like where you broke your leg, you're, you know, they can watch what happens in your brain, but if you were to also go and think of a time where you experienced some significant rejection, that, that, that emotional pain is actually, and even just recalling it, is far harder on your brain than recalling physical pain. And these recollections of these pain, these moments of pain, they're so vivid, so strong, that our brain actually reacts as if it's happening all over again. So, for example, you know, if um, when, you were, when you were a child, a teacher said something to you, I don't know, like, you'll never amount to anything. And you keep going back, and you remember the embarrassment of that moment, and you keep doing that for decades after that. You're putting your body through that experience again and again and again as if it's real. Put it in our bodies to the ringer. Also, another thing that's been studied rejection-wise is it leads to emotional, cognitive, and physical consequences. It can cause anger, anxiety, depression, jealousy, sadness, and loneliness. It can, it can also cause people to attack their own self-worth as they try to justify the rejection. Um, leading, and it can also lead to a significantly reduced self-esteem. Furthermore, again, this is done via brain scans, lots of different testing. When people are struggling under the pain of rejection, they exhibit a lower IQ. So if you're ever about to write a test, don't let anybody reject you right before you're about to walk in. Also shows a reduced ability to perform intellectual tasks when you're struggling with rejection. Shows a reduced ability to think clearly and be decisive. And also you'll experience a short-term um, or you'll experience worse short-term memory under the pain of rejection. Also, experiencing that pain, when it's plaguing your mind, you'll experience um, worse sleep quality, 
You'll, you'll have a drop in your immune system functionality. And if you're ever under chronic rejection, you get that stuff kind of constantly. So here's something interesting theologically. Why is it that rejection causes such a massive problem within humanity? And that would be because we're not meant for it. See, God loves us unconditionally. We're designed for God's unconditional love. That was the original setup of humanity, that we would be in paradise with God and know only love. But of course, we rejected him. And that brought sin to the world, messed up the world in all sorts of different ways. But now we have no metric, no ability to understand rejection because we were never meant for it. So I'm sure everyone in the room has experienced it in one way, shape, or form. You can't pretend you're not affected by it because it does get you every time. Now you know why theologically, scientifically as well. The thing is, the, the more you pretend it doesn't hurt, the more you stuff it down, the more you pretend it didn't happen, the more you're actually allowing rejection to take over your life. Not dealing with stuff, not processing pain, pretending, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, when you're really not fine. When you allow rejection to take a deep hold over your life, it's going to affect every interaction you have with, another, with other human beings. It's going to tremendously skew your thoughts and behaviors. It's going to leave you craving validation. It's going to make it easy to manipulate. And it's going to leave you more prone to rejection, wreaking even more havoc in your life. So what we're looking at today is how do we heal from rejection? How do we, how do we get past this pain? I think there's actually like a master class in rejection taught by Jesus in Scripture. Uh, we can't even go into all of it today, but it's just the, more, the more you look at it, uh, the Gospels, the more it's in there. It's quite something. But the first thing you need to remember as a Christian when you're experiencing the pain of rejection is that Jesus understands your pain. What's interesting is that rejection was always going to be such a foundational element of Jesus' life here on earth. But the prophet Isaiah, 600 years in advance, needed to let us know that this is what the Messiah uh, was going to go through. This is what he said way, way, way long before Jesus would ever come, describing what the Messiah would be like, the hero we've been waiting for. Isaiah 53, 2-3. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. First off, I'm sure you probably never had anybody ever tell you there's literally nothing beautiful about you. Nothing beautiful about your appearance. You might not, you might not be, um, you know, a 10 out of 10 in the, in the eyes of the world, but at least someone would probably say, you, you got nice ears. <laughs> you know, something, there's always something that somebody will say, hey, that's good. But to be called, there's nothing beautiful about your appearance. Nothing to attract people to you. That's how Jesus is described. So funnily enough, you might not know this, because especially the way we paint Jesus nowadays, but the historical position of Christianity is that Jesus is ugly. If you read the earliest Christian writers, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Clement, and Origen, all of them talk about Jesus being pretty homely. Not a good-looking person. And you know in this very vain world, this superficial world, where people do judge you a lot by how you look, you know, you know right then and there that Jesus would have experienced significant rejection. He wasn't the type to, uh, you know, get picked as prom king. He wouldn't have had best looking under his picture in the yearbook. He was probably, he was probably known, he was one of those, he has a good personality though, guys. Um, 
Also, imagine if you're just referred to before you even step foot on this earth. You're despised and rejected. Most often we think of Jesus as loved and adored. That's not the case. He was despised and rejected. I think this concept had to be taught hundreds of years in advance because it's really hard to wrap your head around how the hero that we've been waiting for, when God becomes flesh and walks among us, that he is despised and rejected. Hard to wrap your head around that, you know, the person that's literally come to save us would be utterly reviled. Now, Isaiah is not the only one that, that has to let us know that this is going to be a major part of Jesus' ministry. John does the same thing when he opens his gospel. He starts off, of course, hitting home of how amazing and divine Jesus is, line after line. Then all of a sudden we get to verse 10 in the first chapter there. And that all comes to a screeching halt and says this. It says, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Jesus was rejected even by his own people. Right at the beginning of the gospel, that just, you need, John makes sure you need to know that. Such a massive theme about Jesus' story that Jesus' closest disciple, he needs to let you know there was a lot of rejection. If you look at the birth narrative of Jesus, which I've preached on, I guess multiple times, you're probably very familiar with that. A lot of rejection instantly in that. Jesus has to be born in a, uh, in a cave, basically, where animals should be hanging out because he's treated so terribly, right from the get-go. We're going to fast forward a bit, though, because you're probably very famous for that story. Go right when Jesus started his ministry. So imagine, you know, standing up for your first ever message. Uh, Luke 4. Stands up in the synagogue. Reads Isaiah. Says he's the fulfillment of that prophecy. The response to that was, we need to kill this guy. So imagine your, your, little, your first sermon as a minister. And the response from the crowd is, you need to die. And the response... You know, this crowd that's responding that way is literally your family and your friends. Your hometown. They respond with, we need to kill you. Jesus' first message in Nazareth. People were like, this guy can't be the Messiah. He's just a carpenter's kid. Just a fellow village boy. No way. They, they mob him and they take him to the edge of the cliff, wanting to throw him off the cliff. Of course, so supernaturally, Jesus is protected and he's able to walk right by them. But now that his entire town, his family, his friends has rejected him, he has to go somewhere else. Kicked right out of his town, essentially. This is where you really pick up the gospel stories after a very horrific rejection. The thing is, this, his family rejecting him and treating him like this, this isn't a one-time thing. It took them a long time to come around. Fast forward seven chapters in, into John 7. Beginning of that, Jesus, he, uh, he had been ministering down in Jerusalem. People wanted to kill him there too. And so he goes back up to the northern region of Israel, goes back home. And there was no welcoming ceremony, even though I'm sure they heard legend of what was going on and the miracles that was happening, the crowds. Instead, Jesus' brothers mocked him mercilessly. And they actually told him, hey man, you're not going to get famous hanging out here in the boonies with us. You need to go back to Jerusalem. Back to, back to the place people were literally trying to kill him. Basically tell him, hey, go get yourself killed. That's Jesus' brother's response to him. 
Even when, you know, Jesus starts getting crowds following him. Many were there for the wrong reasons. Some people just wanted a miracle. And then as soon as they got it, they left. They were there solely for what they could get out of Jesus, not actually for him. Worse than that, John 6.26 says that there are people following Jesus solely for the free food. He's known to do the miracles where all of a sudden you know, he can multiply someone's lunch, feed a crowd of thousands. People just like being fed. Then furthermore, you know, there's people that, you know, they liked Jesus' teachings, but then as soon as it got a little bit hard and actually required something of them, they would just leave. John 6, 66 says that many people, many, like crowds of people would just leave him when they encountered challenging teaching. I think this same dynamic towards Jesus actually continues today. There's a lot of people that are more concerned of what they can get from Jesus than rather becoming more like him and wanting a relationship with him. Just imagine if you were in a relationship with somebody, say husband and wife, and one day the husband turns to the wife and says, I'm just here for the food. <laughs> Let's get serious here. That would sting. That would be, be pretty bad. That's how we often treat Jesus. I'm just here you know, to get a good deal out of this. I think, sadly, a lot of Christians, they're really just in church because for fire insurance purposes, essentially. They just want to avoid hell. Don't actually want a relationship with Jesus. Don't actually love him. Don't actually really like him all that much. Don't want to do what he says. But they just want to get to heaven. Just want to use him, essentially. Of course, God knows all and he sees that. And he sees how people are treating him. And that, it's just sad when you think of it. Just constant rejection. Constantly substandard treatment in, in this, this relationship between God and humanity. If we just keep going through the Gospels, Matthew 11, 20 to 21... See, Jesus gets upset because there's multiple towns completely reject his message. They refuse to re repent even when he's done a bunch of miracles. Nazareth, Nazareth was one of those places. Imagine that. <laughs> Jesus is literally doing supernatural things. People are like, yeah, no. Not impressed. <laughs> even in Jerusalem, which is a very, very special city to God. You see in John 12, 37, seeing a bunch of people there did not believe did not believe in him, despite the miracles. So Jesus is actually upset every time he goes into Jerusalem. Every time he sees Jerusalem on the horizon when he's walking, he actually starts to cry because he's so upset about that whole city, the main city, the kind of the crown jewel of Israel, God's special city, rejecting him en masse pretty well. Here's Jesus talk, uh, kind of responding to seeing Jerusalem here in Luke 13, 34. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. Jesus so badly just wants to love and take care of these people. They don't want him. We could continue actually on and on and on through Jesus' story. You know, right into all the different times he was rejected and, and, and used and not treated nicely. We could go to the betrayal of Judas, someone who was his best, one of his best friends for three years. We go to the denial of Peter, the abandonment of his disciples in his great you know, moment of, of, of need when he's uh, being hauled off to be um, tried and then, of course, executed. I'm sure you're getting the point here. If you read the Gospels, it's again and again and again and again. Horrific rejection. 
So does Jesus understand the pain of rejection? Yes, very much so. I'd say he understands it far greater than we ever will. The fact that he is God, he definitely understands people reje- he's people's rejection because we reject him all the time to different degrees. Some people, of course, yeah, don't want anything to do with God. Some people just want to use him, and the relationship with him is completely built on what they can get from him. When you think of the sheer amount of pain that Jesus had of, would have had to you know, gone through, especially when we, we talked about scientifically what happens to you when you're, you're dealing with the pain of rejection. And I'm sure we can all think back to times you know, where we know that pain deep inside of us. And if Jesus went through it again and again and again at super high levels like that, like whole towns, whole cities rejecting him, closest friends, it makes me marvel at how did he push through that? How did he, how did he keep walking? How did he not... Just become a shell of himself, you know, living in a tent in the wilderness, you know, just so done with people. I feel like if I was, if I experienced like a little bit of what he experienced, like I'd be like, well, I tried, see ya. Like, I'll try, come back in another few thousand years. <laughs> like it, it's, it's wild. Again and again and again, horrific rejection at very large scales. But yet, you know, Jesus is able to go on and accomplish his mission. He's able to go on and accomplish everything that was intended, you know, for him to do. And we're going to look at, through the rest of the sermon here, the different ways that he kind of taught and modeled how we handle rejection, how we can move past that pain. He literally is the world's leading expert in rejection and how to handle it. We're going to go to him. So the first, first one here, first step, is we need to learn when to shake it off. Just get rid of it right away. We're going to go to Luke 9. This is when Jesus is sending his disciples on their first solo mission. He's been teaching with them for a while. He says, all right, you're going to go out in my stead. You're going to go and do uh, some preaching, some teaching, and you're going to perform miracles, cast out demons, all this fun stuff. And he gives them some advice as they're about to leave here. So here we go, Luke 9, 1 to 5. It says, one day Jesus called together his disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out demons and heal all diseases. So he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for your journey, he instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if, if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as soon as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to, to their fate. So Jesus is teaching a very important lesson here. There is, there is people out there and there's places out there that are going to welcome you with open arms. They're going to care for you. They're going to love you. They're going to accept you going to meet your needs. But there's also places out there that will completely, people in places that will completely reject you for no reason. No reason whatsoever. You don't even get a foot in the door. Before any sort of relationship or connection even forms, people are just going to reject you. Sometimes you'll just be immediately dismissed. Jesus is teaching in these type of scenarios kind of these small-scale rejections where you don't necessarily even really have that relationship with somebody. There's not a lot of um, relational equity, I guess you could say. Those type of scenarios, don't dwell on it. Someone gives you a dirty look when you're walking on the street, oh well, shake it off, walk away, move on. That's a them problem, not a you problem. Funnily enough, right when these disciples get back from this trip, Jesus puts them to the test. He says, all right, let's go on a tour of ministry. First village they show up to in Samaria. Kicks them out instantly. Doesn't even want to hear anything. Jesus doesn't even get a foot in, foot in the village. 
And the disciples' response wasn't just to shake it off and do exactly what Jesus told them. It wasn't to be, you know, unbothered and said, oh, well, we'll just go on to the next town. Thanks. <laughs> Anyways. Instead, they got super mad. And they said, all right, Jesus, call down fire. Let's burn all these people. Let's kill every single one of them. That was their response. I was getting real mad about it. Hope these people need to die. Again, rejection stinks all the time. Wishing, wishing death on people is pretty extreme, but let's get serious. Sometimes things get pretty dark. Someone cuts you off in traffic and you're just like, ooh, hope you get in the next. You know, it gets dark sometimes. We get pretty hot-headed at even the slightest things. Someone gives us a dirty look walking on the street, all of a sudden you just want to show them the business. You know, it just, rejection gets you. Jesus is saying, in those small scenarios, just shake it off, move on. Jesus told his disciples, you know, just cool your jets. <laughs> this whole village doesn't need to die, okay? Jesus knows that sometimes if a door slams in your face, it doesn't mean that every single one will. So we don't need to get worked up. We don't need to focus on the closed doors when there's a whole lot of open ones. We don't need to become a rage machine every time, you know, the slightest rejection happens. We can deal with some of the small stuff really, really quickly. We don't need to make mountains out of molehills. Our third point here, and a second way we can respond to rejection. Um, this one is to respond very strategically. So the first one is basically don't do anything. Shake it off. Move on real quick. Don't dwell on it. Don't let it get to you. Don't let it take root within you. Deal with it super quickly. But of course, you know, there's a lot of other scenarios where we do have a relationship with somebody and we just can't pretend something just didn't happen there. It stings at a far deeper level. So we need to figure out kind of how we're going to respond. We can't just shake it off in, the, in these type scenarios. So, you know, there's, there's sometimes, you know, you're around people where maybe it's become repeated. They're a fairly toxic person, we'll say. They, maybe they've burned you multiple times. And in a way, you've almost become a glutton for punishment. You, you keep subjecting yourself to the same thing again and again and again. One of Jesus' teachings in this type of scenario is actually just to put up some boundaries. First, you know, when, when Jesus experienced rejection at Nazareth, he didn't actually go and teach there and, and do miracles like he did in other places. Pretty well, whenever that happened to a place, he, he didn't really go back. And he just wouldn't do miracles for people because he, he knew... People aren't going to believe anyways. So I'm not going to waste my time. He put up a boundary there. Okay, if these people aren't kind of treating me how I'm going to deserve, I'm not going to just go after them again and again and again and try to win their approval. I'm not going to try to force myself on them. Hit a boundary there. Here's another very famous verse. I really like this one, kind of putting up um, boundaries. Matthew 7, 6. It says, Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. There's people out there, you have value. What you say has value. But there's people out there that will not at all recognize it. Like if you, in real life, if you threw a bunch of pearls into a pig pen, they'd eat, they'd eat the pearls. They wouldn't make a wonderful necklace out of it, even though those have a lot of value. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is actually really funny if you read his, the way he artistically explains a lot of stuff. 
We know there's sometimes that you just need to just walk away from people, not waste your time on people that aren't treating you the way that you deserve. You need to see yourself as valuable and, and even your input in this, in this world. What you bring to this world is valuable. And if someone is repeatedly just not at all treating you like such, you don't need to waste your time with them. Secondly, within this, is that, you know, sometimes, though, a confrontation is necessary. Holy Spirit kind of needs to let you guide you. Let, you know, he, has, he needs to guide you in this. Because, you know, there's, there's times where you just kind of say, you know what, I'm not going to hang out with this person as much, or I'm not, I'm not going to be around them as much. But other times, you'd be like, you know, this relationship, that's not going to work. It's, I was like, for example, husband or wife or something, or your best friend, you're not going to be like, well, I guess we'll just not see each other as much. It's like, no, we actually need to deal with this. There's a problem between us. Let's deal with it. So you'll notice that when you read the gospel, Jesus felt, spent a lot of time with a group of people called the Pharisees, these religious teachers. They would show up every time he preached. They would invite him over for meals in their house. Even sometimes they'd open up their house and say, hey, Jesus, spend the night. They'd see him in the synagogues every week. They would see him at the temple regularly. They were people who were very well-versed in Scripture. But they treated Jesus absolutely terribly large in part. They were always trying to make him look bad, uh, put him in traps, trying to come up with these theological conundrums for him or, or political uh, problems to try to get him in trouble, all sorts of stuff like that. You know, they were very jealous of him because he had a following, he had a crowd, he could perform miracles. And ultimately, their rejection of Jesus, it was rooted in kind of the, their own problems. They had hypocrisy, they had arrogance, they had selfishness. And the way these people were behaving wasn't just harming the relationship between them and Jesus, it was harming a lot of other people as well. So you'll note in, these, in this type of scenario, Jesus didn't just shake it off and say, oh well, or I said, you know, put up a little boundary or something like that. He said, you know what, we actually need to deal with this. We actually need to have a conversation so he would stood up, he would stand up for himself, he would stand up for others even. He would talk about their behavior, kind of point out their hypocrisy. Another example would be with Jesus, Jesus and his disciples. You'll see him deal with things with them multiple times. Didn't just kind of shake it off. He actually, you know, there's a problem between them, he would deal with it. For example, when they fell asleep on him in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's about to be crucified and tortured and all this kind of stuff. He's stressed out of his mind. He needs, he needs friends. He needs friends to stay up with him, to support him. Do his friends do that? No, they choose to be super selfish and take, take care of their own needs. And they wanted to sleep while Jesus is stressed out of his mind, so much so that he is um, sweating blood, which medically can only happen if you're extremely stressed. But they totally let him down. And did Jesus just shake that off? No, he actually said something to them and said, like, I need you. I need you to stay awake with me. I need you in this moment. Notice he didn't, ex he didn't respond with rage. Didn't slap him upside the head or anything. But he, he was still pointed and he was specific. Of, this is how your actions have hurt me. So sometimes what we need in these scenarios of rejection, if someone's really not treating us according to our value, and we need to be led by the Holy Spirit in this. But sometimes you need an honest conversation with people. And this is a conversation that has a hope for potential repentance and reconciliation. Because you value that relationship and you want to see it come together in a way that it hasn't been maybe in a while. Even with the Pharisees, uh, these religious teachers that taught Jesus, taught, uh, they treated him quite terribly in a lot of ways. 
You'll note by the end of Jesus' story, there's multiple of them that actually come to be you know, radical followers of Jesus. So even his scenarios, his very pointed conversations with them, some people actually listened and turned turn to him. They turned from their wicked ways. They stopped with their evil behavior, all the things they were doing to hurt Jesus and others. They turned from that. So it can happen. Fourthly, here's a big one in how, how we kind of deal with rejection. This one's super important here. We need to know who loves us. Generally, as humans, we focus on the negative. If you, had, if you encountered ten people and nine of them loved you extravagantly and thought you were the most wonderful thing, but one person just hated your stinking guts, I guarantee you that you will stew on that one person for weeks on end and forget about the nine that love you. We do that all the time. All the time. So what we need to do is to counteract rejection with acceptance. Rather than going into woe is me, I like to call it wow is me, which is the opposite. Wow, I am loved. And we need to counteract it and do the opposite. Feed something else into our brain, because it's going to stew on rejection, so we need to very purposefully stew on acceptance instead. Change the narrative that's going on inside. And also take steps in our life um, as well to even look for and to build acceptance as well, love and acceptance. So you'll notice when Jesus is rejected from Nazareth, his family, his friends say, this guy needs to die. We don't, we don't believe in him. He's just a carpenter. Can't be the Messiah. Jesus leaves Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum. He finds a new hometown. There he's accepted big time. And he starts to build a band of brothers. Note his, his physical brothers, his actual real-life brothers, super terrible to him. Interesting enough, right after that, what does he do? He forms a new band of brothers. New disciples. You'd think if there was any human being that could just do it alone, you know, just say, oh, well, my whole family rejected me, my whole village rejected me, I'll just be a a lone wolf for the rest of my life. You think if any human being could handle that, it would be Jesus, but he didn't do that even. First thing he did when he lost community, when he lost this support system of acceptance, is to go find another one. So he models the need for being in community, the need for being in a place that people will accept you and take care of you and love you and treat you the way that you deserve to be treated. Because the natural response to rejection is to isolate because it stings, it's embarrassing, and it damages your, damages your trust in other people. So often you just want to hide away. When people hurt you, you don't want more people, generally. But we need to override that and say, no, I need people. As much as my brain and my hurt heart is telling me to stay away from people, I need people. I can't do this alone. Even Jesus didn't do it alone. We cannot let the hurt of rejection keep us from the blessing that is true Christian community. We need to be around people that affirm us, that build us up in our most holy faith, spur us on towards good works, come against the lies that we're believing, and so much more. There's a lot of one another's in Scripture. We are designed for community. We need community. We cannot allow the pain of rejection to take us out of community. Secondly, and even more importantly, Jesus didn't just model having an earthly support system. He modeled having a heavenly support system. 
He modeled hearing and knowing the affirmation of heaven. He keyed into the reality of heaven, which speaks a better word over the realities of this earth. You can be rejected all the time in earth, but when you are loved and adored in heaven, that is something that can fuel you and keep you going. Because heaven really knows what's up. They really know the truth. And that is the reality that we need to key into more than anything else. What's so beautiful to me, if you think of Jesus went through all this pain of rejection, his father didn't just stand there and do nothing about it. You'll note he continually affirms Jesus. He will, he will respond to people's rejection with affirmation. He is, he'll speak a better word over, over Jesus. It's recorded three separate occasions in Scripture. So remember Jesus' first day of ministry, where people are like, listen, your, your sermon is bonkers, man. You're not the Messiah. You should die. This is, so Jesus' first day of ministry, he, he gets baptized. Again, he's leading, leading the way, showing what we're supposed to be doing as, as Christians. Mark 1, 9-11 here. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. So Jesus would have experienced pain from the physical realm, physical family, heavenly family, says, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Jesus hadn't completed really anything yet, nothing really of note. Here's his father saying how proud he is of him. God is showing that you know, his child possesses an inherent value before he even accomplishes anything. He is telling Jesus who you are is not what you do. Also note the, 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 the superlative language that's being used here. Jesus isn't just loved He's dearly loved. He doesn't just bring his father joy, he brings his father great joy. The father's heart is overflowing with this passionate and exuberant love and affirmation for his son. Radically different than the way the world was treating him. Go to the second instance of this happening. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. This is when um, Peter, James, and John go on a hike with Jesus up a mountain and then on the top of the mountain, Jesus shows them what he really looks like, when he, when he, what he's really like coming from heaven. And he's just completely shrouded in, in glory. And he's just shining. And then Moses and Elijah show up. You know, and Peter's beside himself. He's like, oh my goodness, we need to build an altar or something. This is pretty wild. And then a voice from heaven calls down. Matthew 17, 5. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. If you think of all the times people said, hey, don't listen to this Jesus guy. His teaching's a little crazy. It's a little too harsh at times. It requires a little too much of our people. You know, what's this about having to die to self? We don't like this. Just think of all the time people told Jesus, yeah, your teaching, your teaching is very good. All the Pharisees that came against him constantly. Here's the father saying, listen to him. He's affirming that Jesus' teaching is correct, that he's, he's a trustworthy source of teaching. Jesus would have been used to being called a heretic again and again and again, but the Father speaks a better word. 
Third instance of this happening, just a few days before Jesus is crucified. So remember, right around this time, his disciples aren't exactly the support system that they should be. Not really treating Jesus the way he deserves. Jesus knows he's about to die. Of course, that would be mentally taxing. Hard time for Jesus. He's also walking into course, you know, being around Jerusalem again. Lots of emotions. So here's the Father speaking a better word over Jesus yet again. John 12, 27 to 28. Jesus talking here says, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do it and I will do so again. Jesus ultimately, he wants to bring glory and honor to his Father in heaven. Of course, he's worried knowing that I'm going to have to go through a lot of crazy stuff in the next, next few days here. He's worried. Am I going to be able to make it? Am I going to be able to push through all that pain and that hurt and that torture? The Father says to Jesus, you've already brought glory to my name and, I'm, and you're going to do it again. He had complete another confidence in Jesus knowing that he's going to make it. He's going to make it through all the hurt and all the pain. And even though Jesus hadn't had his crowning moment on the cross and in the tomb. The Father says, you've already brought glory to my name. You've already honored me. Like, I already am so proud of you. That's how he's talking to him. Now, here's a very important concept biblically. As beautiful as it is to see the Father speak over Jesus like this, Jesus came to win us that same acceptance, that same relationship that we would know that just as the Father loves his child, Jesus, he also loves us, his child as well. And he, he affirms us the same way that he affirms Jesus. A very important concept biblically is that Jesus was the child that won the acceptance of every other child of God. He actually won the right for us to be also called children of God. We're going to go right back to where John opened his account we were talking about being rejected, but there's another line in here that we skipped when we started here. John 1, 10 to 13. It says, He came into the, the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or, or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So we become a new creation when we follow Jesus. And we get to become a child of God. We get adopted into the royal family of the universe. What's so wild is, you know, Jesus experienced a horrific rejection so we could know divine acceptance. All we need to do to experience this divine acceptance is accept the most rejected human being to ever live. And then we get to experience an acceptance beyond imagination. It's a pretty good deal. Jesus made a way for you to know what it's like to have the Heavenly Father affirm your identity and your purpose and your calling and your value. He made a way for you to know how much the Heavenly Father loves you, is proud of you, and how he bursts with joy when he thinks about you 
You'll note that the Heavenly Father, you know, he affirmed Jesus before he even accomplished anything. This is important because he showcased that a child of God is not loved because of what they do, but because of who they are. We live in a world today that says your value comes from what you do. Heaven speaks a better word and so says, no, your value is because of who you are. See, your value is irrevocable, it's unchangeable, it's also astronomically high, far beyond our comprehension. Our value is inherent, meaning that it is permanent and it's an essential characteristic. Our value is also apparent, meaning that it's clearly visible and clearly understood. It is obvious. There is no taking away your value. You are a child of God. Another thing is that the Heavenly Father would remind Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration. He's kind of showing the, the end of the story, really. He's, that's a reminder to Jesus and the disciples of where this is all headed. Jesus and the disciples, they get to experience the glory of heaven. Jesus is shrouded in glory. God does that as a reminder. Jesus, remember, one day, one day you're going to be shrouded in glory. One day you're going to leave this, this world of pain and hurt and you're going to be in paradise. Again, that's something that God wants to remind you about. One day you're going to leave this earth that has rejected you in many different ways. And you're going to live in heaven that will accept you forever. You're going to be shrouded in glory. You're going to have a new body that's perfect in every way. And you're going to experience an eternal heavenly acceptance that you've always longed for. And that is something that is worth dwelling on. We think, we like to dwell on the rejection we've experienced here. Father is saying, dwell on the acceptance you'll experience for eternity. Forever and ever and ever and ever. All you will know is love and acceptance. And it will be lavished upon you. This third instance of heavenly affirmation. When Jesus is wondering, am I capable of doing what I was called here to do? Can I go through all this hurt and pain? Can I make it, can I make it through all these obstacles that are in my way? And he's worried about that. Of course, Father comes to him and says... You can do it. I know you can. You're going to do it. You're going to bring glory to my name. And you already have. As a child of God, you better believe that God will speak into your life. And he will remind you that you are chosen for such a time as this. That he put you on this earth for this specific time for a reason and a purpose. And that's because he believes in you. There's a lot of stuff, yes, that will come against you. But God knew that you're up to the task. He has a tremendous belief in you. The world will continually tell you, you don't have what it takes, you can't make it. You can't get over the, you know, the pain and the hurt that's thrown in your way. You can't cross over the obstacles that are put in front of you. God will say anything is possible. God will say you can make it through anything when I'm on your side. God will say that you're an overcomer, that you're more than a conqueror. Time and again, he, he will lavish you in this affirmation that said that you can do it. You can make it through. Something we need, because I think a lot of people out there lose hope, lose their joy, lose their faith when many things get thrown in the way, when they're, when they're just in the middle of hurt and pain, and their hearts become ravaged. We need to, need to have that heavenly affirmation that say, you can make it. I'm on your side. Together we can do anything.
You're an overcomer. You're more than a conqueror. I, I, I foresaw all of this, and I chose you for this moment in time and this place in time. I have complete another belief in you to make it. It's a tremendous and amazing affirmation that we can receive from the Father. Another important concept is I think the world constantly kind of lives their life trying to win other people's acceptance. Always looking to win acceptance. It's basically like kind of the, the, the celebrity culture, basically. There's people that are just dying for the acceptance of humans. That's the way that the world is geared towards. We just, we just want to be loved and adored by other human beings. Love that affirmation and acceptance. But if you live your life constantly looking for the affirmation of others, that really is no life at all. Instead, as Christians, we need to live like our acceptance has already been won in the greatest victory in human history, on the cross and in the tomb, and nothing can ever take our acceptance away. doesn't matter how people treat us here, our acceptance is won and it is irrevocable. The, the disciples of Jesus, who became the apostles that wrote the rest of the New Testament, they certainly understood this concept because they, they would continually proclaim how they saw themselves. They knew that they were beloved by God. And they would continually talk about how that we don't live looking for the approval of the world. We live as if we already have the approval of God. Because Jesus won this for us. Because, you know, because of the work of Jesus to God, we are seen as righteous. Even with our sin, when we become a Christian, we get, we get a great trade. God gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He lived the perfect life we didn't. So we can... We often can spend our time thinking of all the stuff we used to do, um, all the sin that we've got ourselves involved in, and that can be shrouded, you know, get a whole bunch of shame in our system. Scripture teaches, no, you've been given the righteousness of Jesus. It's a gift you don't deserve, but it's, an amazing, it's a gift nonetheless. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you've given the righteousness of God. Secondly, we've also... Had our sinful life die, our previous life die. We've been given a new life. We've, been given, we've become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Also, we now walk holy and blameless before God. Ephesians 1, 4. We are also now seen as God's masterpiece. Ephesians 2, 20. I don't think there's too many people out there that might be calling you an utter masterpiece. God does. God also calls us his friend. James 2.23. A lot of other people out there might not treat you as a friend, might not consider you a friend, but God considers you a friend. He wants to be your friend. He's a friend that will never leave. Colossians 3.12 says that we are beloved and we're chosen. It's the complete opposite of rejection right there. You're loved and you're, and you're liked, you're picked. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are also royalty and we are God's most prized possession. He considers nothing more valuable to him than us. We're his most exciting thing that he has. Prized possession. 1 John 3.1 says we are also lavished in God's love. We have so much of God's love we don't even know what to do with it. We are filled to overflowing with it. Don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Still lavishes it upon us. You've got so much of God's love, you can't even contain it or quantify it in your brain. 
Also, Ephesians 1.11 says, A child of the Most High God, there is an extraordinary inheritance beyond imagination waiting for us. That's something to dwell on right there. There's an extraordinary inheritance waiting for us in heaven. God loves you so much that he's, he puts you, you know, to receive this, inherit, this inheritance. It's another way he lavishes his love upon you. So in conclusion here, if you live for the approval of people, you're going to die by their rejection. Instead, you need to live for the glorious acceptance that Christ has won for you on the cross. And instead of seeking the approval of man, you need to go and seek the affirmation that the Father has for you. And let me tell you, he has a lot. He wants to lavish you in affirmation. He wants to lavish you in love and speak to you again and again and again of how much he loves you, how much he believes in you, how much he believes that even with all the pain that you've experienced and all the hurt that you've experienced, he wants to let you know that there is so much more for you and there's so much good coming and one day you're going to live in heaven with him for forever and this is all going to be a distant memory. You're going to remember this pain no more. All you're going to know is glory. <laughs> God wants you to know that even the most extreme rejection that you've experienced, the greatest depths of pain that you've, you've walked through, God wants you to know that it is healable and it is conquerable. You can keep going. There is still more for you. There is joy for you still that's out there. There's affirmation. There is love. There is acceptance. It's still there. And you can still receive it. Jesus doesn't dismiss that pain. He doesn't just say, hey, that's no big deal. Don't worry about it. He understands it at a very deep level. He knows exactly how badly that has ravaged your heart. He came to this earth not just so we can understand God, but that we would know that God understands us. He understands you at a very, very deep level. He's gone through all the same pain you've gone through and then some. If there's anyone who can commiserate with your pain, it's Jesus. But he doesn't just commiserate with it. He says, I'm here to heal it too. I'm here to bring you a hope and a future. I'm here, to know, I'm here to let you know about the plan I have for your life. I'm here to bring you a divine acceptance. I'm here to speak a better word over your life. I'm here to be your friend. I'm, I'm, I'm here to get you excited and to bring joy into your life. I'm here to see you through to the other side. I'm here to get, this, get you out of this valley that you've been walking in. So whatever you've gone through in this life, I can guarantee you that Jesus can heal it. Whatever rejection, whatever pain, whatever hurt that you've been through, Jesus can heal it. He gets it. He's the world's leading expert on rejection, but he's also the world's leading expert on acceptance. He understands your pain. He understands your hurt, but he also knows how to cure it. He also knows how to replace all that pain, all that hurt, with an amazing feeling of love. I guess you could say that he's, he's your forever Valentine. Anyway, that's a corny way to end this. <laughs> oh, well. Maybe we'll get to heaven and you'll, you'll have a... You maybe, yeah, we'll get to heaven one day and you'll have a Valentine written for every year <laughs> or something. Uh, but anyways, let's end with some prayer. And, and uh, I'll just end with a, a prayer for everybody. And if you want specific prayer for really any reason, whether it's, it's healing and emotional or physical, or you just need encouragement, need someone to stand with you, we'd love to pray with you right up here at the front after. But anyways, let's bow our heads and pray.
Jesus, we just want to thank you that you came to earth to live a life as a human. You're not a God that just stayed far away and left us in our own problems. You got right down in the mud and got dirty with us. You experienced all the hurt and the pain that we've walked through. You get it, and you experienced it all at a far deeper level. You're very familiar with suffering, as the scripture says. But God, I know that you love us so much that you know that suffering is not the be-all, end-all. It's not the end of the story. God, we know that first and foremost, you are in the business of redemption. God, your symbol is literally the cross, a symbol of execution and extreme suffering that now is a symbol of hope and joy and peace and love. Because you're that good at rewriting the story. You're that good at changing the narrative. You're that good at redeeming. And so, God, I don't, I don't know everybody's story in here today, but I do know that in one way, shape, or form, they've experienced rejection. They've been in scenarios where they have not been treated the way that they deserve. God, people maybe even in here have been walking around with a deep rejection wound that has been in their life for even decades. God, I know that you're in the business of healing, and so we're going to pray even for divine and supernatural healing and removing of, of those pains and those hurts and those lesions that are in people's hearts right now. We're praying for some divine heart surgery this morning, that you could go into even the depths of people, people's hearts, remind them of that biggest hurt and pain that they've been carrying around that's maybe been leading them to mistrust or maybe it's been messing with their sleep or their health in one way or another, been plaguing their mind. And God, I pray you're going to heal it to such a degree that it's not coming back anymore. They're going to walk in just a divine freedom and a divine acceptance that's going to deal with that wounding. God, I pray that as we go through this life and we are, we are guaranteed to face rejection in one way, shape, or form or another, it's going to come after us. God, I pray that you're going to help people kind of remember the different things we've learned in this message. And there's a lot more we didn't even talk about either that's just revealed in Scripture. And I pray the Holy Spirit's going to guide people in kind of how to respond and, and how to deal and how to process through pain. Because though we feel pain, we're not, it's not God's plan for us to stay in it all the time. He wants to walk us through redemption one way, shape, or form or another. So God, I just pray that people are just going to be able to handle even the pain of rejection better than they have before. They're going to be able to process it right through their system. They're going to process it with you. Again, the world's leading expert on rejection. And God, I pray that you're, you're going to go through the great exchange with them and, and all that pain and hurt that they offer up, I pray you're just going to give them an amazing trade. And for all that pain and hurt, you're just going to give them love and acceptance and joy and peace and hope. I just pray, God, for this these amazing turnarounds in, in people's souls. And rather than this, this pain plaguing their mind. Instead, they're going to dwell on the goodness of God. They're going to dwell on what's coming and waiting for them in heaven. They're going to begin to think of all you know, the amazing people out there that do love them more so than the people out there that don't. God, I pray also as a Christian community that we are going to grow better at loving people in here, knowing full well that everyone out there has gone through hurt or pain and is walking through the pain of rejection. God, you have designed the church to be a support system. And God, we repent from the times we haven't been that and have not kind of been up to snuff with that, that we've actually hurt people as they've come in. God, I pray that you're going to guide us in being true Christian community in this congregation, that we accept people with loving arms and we affirm people and we speak and call out their destiny and their purpose. And we come alongside and we spur them on to good works 
And God, I pray that we'd also come along each other and help each other heal and help each other be able to move on. Also pray we'd be able to bring, uh, you know, wisdom uh, for these circumstances where maybe kind of boundaries need, need to be made or a confrontation even needs to happen or a conversation needs to happen that we would come alongside and be able to help each other with all of that as well. God, we truly want to be a family in this church. It's right in our name that is part of our mission to be family and family loves each other. And I pray, God, you're just going to continue to guide us as a church to just be a healing salve to one another. People can come in for the, with the pain of rejection, but they're going, to, they're going to leave with the joy of acceptance. And I pray, God, you just be able to minister through each and every one of us and to use us to spread your amazing love and to speak your amazing affirmation. In your name we pray, amen.